0: Chapter five, we're going to see um, just four witnesses coming and giving their testimony of Jesus. Perhaps as I read, you can you can see testimony is the key word in this these eight, these seven verses. It occurs eight times. It is the it is a courtroom scene. You know, we're just trying to discern the truth, and these these uh, people are these whatever things, or objects, whatever are giving testimony to what is true to, to Jesus Christ. I just want to read this passage for you and look, look for testimony. Look for who's giving this testimony. This is He who came by water and blood. Now, just, let, let's, just, let's just catch. Who is He? He is Jesus, the Son of God. Okay, Jesus is He who came by water and blood. Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that He has borne concerning His Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God is a testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. We're going to see four giving testimony to Jesus Christ. Now, throughout the Bible there's many who gave testimony of Jesus. I mean Phil read today about John the Baptist. His testimony was, "Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There he is. Uh, Peter was one who gave testimony of Jesus. "You are the Christ, the Son of the Living God." The centurion at the crucifixion of Christ gave testimony, truly this was the Son of God. The Apostle Paul gave testimony by confounding the Jews to point that Jesus was the Christ. All of the apostles gave unrelenting witness and testimony to Jesus. But today we see some testimonies, some giving testimony perhaps you've never really thought much about before. We're going to see four witnesses, and we're going to see the testimony of the Word, the testimony of the blood the testimony of the Spirit and the testimony of God. Now, perhaps you've thought about the testimony of the Spirit, you've thought about the testimony of God, but I don't think that you have thought very much about the testimony of the water and the blood. But you can see the water and the blood and the Spirit all coming together in verses 6 through 8, the first half of our text. Look at verse 6 again. This is He who came by water and blood... Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is truth. And here it is. For there are three that testify. Who are these three? It's the Spirit, and the water, and the blood. And these three agree. Let me just sideline s- segue. At, at this point, if you have a King James Version, your Bible is going to read a little bit different. Because the King James Version of the Bible has what's called the, the Kama Johannine fit right here in, in verse 3 that, that speaks about that the, we have three in heaven. It's the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. And it's these that testify on the earth. It's not in our most modern Bible translations today because there's very little Greek evidence for it. In fact, I think the earliest Greek manuscripts are not until the 1500s. It's only the Latin manuscripts that contain these. And even the early church fathers never quoted this, though they could have quoted it because it speaks well about the Trinity. They didn't. There's very, very little evidence for it. So that's about all I'm going to say about that. But it just says in verse 7, there are three that testify. It's not in heaven, but it's these three on earth. It's the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three all agree. In other words, we have these three witnesses coming forth standing before the Supreme Court, if you will, or in some regards today, we're going to flip it. You are the, you are the judges. You are the, the jury today. And these people are testifying to you. And you need to discern what is true and what is not true. Each of them will give their testimony. They all agree on this testimony. We say, well, well, what it's about? It's all about Jesus. The water testifies about Jesus. The blood testifies about Jesus, and the Spirit testifies about Jesus. I believe it all, folks, on the same thing, that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. He is the Son of God. Believe in Him. I believe that's what water is pointing to. I believe that's what the blood is pointing to. I believe that's what the Spirit is pointing to. I want to begin by looking mostly at the first two, the water and blood. They're the first two mentioned, and they come together. Now, let me say there's great difficulty in understanding what it is that John meant when he he penned these words. Um, historically, lots of suggestions. I want to give you six of them, all right? Just to kind of give you a flavor of how people have interpreted these words. Some have seen a reference to the baptism and the Lord's Supper. Of course, in baptism there's water. In the Lord's Supper, there is the blood. And... Um, how convenient that would have been for us today we're going to celebrate the lord's supper at the end of my message how convenient if i had said that's what it means right the the water is baptism and that testifies of jesus and the, the the blood is the the lord's supper but i don't i don't think that's what these are are speaking of because the context here is just so foreign to that um and, and in fact even like the the next two of these six views uh just basically take these take water and blood extract them and basically say, well, we're in the Bible to talk about that. Let's let's push this down. This is perhaps what it believes. So when baptism, Lord's Supper, or second view says that there's a reference to the Old Testament sacrificial symbolism because in the Old Testament, you remember when we went through Leviticus, that there was water that purified and there was the blood of the sacrifice. The cleansing was certainly there and the sacrifices were certainly bloody. But uh, that's pretty foreign to John's context. He's not talking about Old Testament sacrifice at this point just kind of comes in again. Taking these two symbols, lifting them up, and then just pulling them biblically. Others have just seen these reference to purification and redemption. The water signifying purification and the blood signifying redemption. Now that is totally true throughout the Bible, is that water is, it does, cleanses, it purifies. And the blood does redeem, it is redemption. But the question is, is that what John had in mind? That's what we want to go for. We want to find out what, what John's intent was. And again, one of the things that Justice Scalia was, was really good about was that he was a textualist. That is, he, he concerned himself not with what we think today, but he concerned himself with what the Constitution itself thought, what the Constitution itself says. What are the words? What does it mean? And I think that you're pushing a lot, a lot of symbolism on the context here if you believe any of those, those three. And, and then the next three relate to the coming of Jesus, which I think they're better on track. The first one, uh, number four in the view, if you're counting them, is from John 19, verse 34, which tells us how when the soldiers pierced the side of Jesus, out came water and blood. In fact, this is the only other time, in John's gospel at least, that these two are placed together, the water and the blood. And so some, like I think Augustine, he would have put back at this point and just said, that's the water and the blood when Jesus died. And so they both referred to his death. Augustine would have said, And I say, maybe Uh, a fifth view is that people see it as a a reference to uh, the incarnation and death of Christ, water referring to the incarnation and, and the blood referring to his death. A proof of that might come in Jesus words to Nicodemus. Truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Now, there's, there's all types of discussion about what John, Jesus meant when he was talking to John the Baptist. Was it, is it birth? Or is that the cleansing of the water? Um, which might be more likely, but in some regards, you've got to be born of water. You've got to be born of the Spirit. There's two births. And what are the two births we have? The two births that we have are the, the natural birth and the spiritual birth. It, it could be that the water refers to the incarnation. Or lastly, this is where most people are today, um, it could be as well. Others seen a reference to baptism and death of Jesus, right? Water referring to the baptism of Jesus and the blood referring to the death of Jesus. And, and this is really helpful proof-wise um, when you think about what took place at the baptism of Jesus. Well, when he came up out of the water, you remember that? John the Baptist put him under water and he came up out of the water. The spirit descended like a dove and then there was a, a voice Coming from heaven. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And, and there's why I think that it even helps with our context here this morning is because um, our context this morning is speaking about testifying. And that is God the Father testifying from heaven that Jesus is indeed his son and that God is indeed pleased in him. And you can have no stronger testimony than the testimony of God himself. Well, when it comes to determining these interpretations, I mean, obviously those first three, as I've said, they're just symbols, probably not. Um, Because see, they, they don't... John, up to this point, has used very little symbolic language. And, and why would you, why would you pull it back? John has been very straightforward. He's been very, if you say that you know God but don't obey him, then you're lying. You're not practicing the truth. The one who practices righteousness is righteous. He is righteous. The one who doesn't practice righteousness is of the devil. And he's just very straightforward. He's, he's repetitive and he's cyclical, but he's straightforward and sort of, pull these symbolic pictures out of that is, is difficult also they, they don't explain the connection with jesus here's look at the connection with jesus it is he who came by water and blood not by the water only but by the water and the blood so it's somehow connected intimately with jesus in his coming and i do believe that those last three interpretations talk about that whether it's the water and the blood poured out at his death or whether it was his birth coming in the water or whether it's his baptism coming at least it's talking about the coming of jesus they spin around this similar theme of that and and i think that everything that links those last three together and i'm not going to tell you which one of those last three i believe i don't know but what links them all together is what i think john is getting at here it's linking them that the incarnation of christ that he really lived he was flesh and blood he drank water he shed blood If you remember, and the reason I say that, and I believe that, is because when you think about 1 John, the incarnation of Christ was a huge issue in this letter. Chapter 4, verse 2. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. See, when John was writing this letter, there were those who denied that Jesus came in the flesh. Um, They argued that he was more of a spirit being who seemed to be fleshly. The theological term for this is docetism, from the Greek word dokeo, or you might say doceo to get docetism. Dokeo means to think or seem or appear. And so docetism means that Jesus just, just appeared or just seemed to be one. But John was emphatic, no, Jesus came in the flesh. And if you don't confess Jesus in the flesh, that's antichrist. That is wrong. In fact, let's again. Chapter 4, 1 through 3. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. In in, in other words, right? Just anybody who's going to come along, don't believe them. Lots of false prophets have gone out into the world, but here's the one to believe. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus, that is not confess Jesus come in the flesh, is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. So I think he's saying Jesus came in the flesh. He's, he's water, he's blood, he's reality. In fact, even in 1 John 4, remember when I we preached the Christmas season, the incarnation, I didn't deviate from 1 John at all because... All the texts were pointing us to Christ and were pointing us to the incarnation. Like chapter 4, verse 9, in this is love that God was made manifest among us and that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him fully into the world, fully flesh and blood. In this is love, verse 10, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us, and He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Jesus was every bit real as any animal sacrifice in the Old Testament was real. Because He was our propitiation. Or chapter 4, verse 14. And we have seen and testified, the Father has sent His Son <coughs> to be the Savior of the world, that Jesus came into the world to be the Savior. And it's not that He just appeared in the world, or He just looked like He was in the world. No, He was fully in the world, fully in the flesh, He came by water, came by blood, he came in the flesh. Now whether it's his birth, his baptism, or the water at his death that flowed out of his side, I'm not really sure, but I do think that it all references the reality of Jesus coming. The presence of Jesus, the substance of Jesus is the issue. That is the testimony we need to hear this morning. That Jesus Christ came to earth. He walked the planet. He was real. In fact, that's what John has been getting at this whole epistle. Look back at the very first verse, chapter 1, verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon, and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and here it is, testify to it. And proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the fathers, which was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship was with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. John said this, we saw Jesus. We talked with Jesus. We heard Jesus. We touched Jesus. And what we experienced, that we are testifying to you, that in Him is eternal life. And believe in Him and you can have life. This is what John has been getting at the entire epistle. And so that's the point of application for us here this morning. Is do you believe this testimony? As you've heard the testimony from the water and the blood. As you, the jury, sits out there. Or the jurist on the Supreme Court. What do you take of this testimony? Do you believe... The testimony of the water and the blood. Do you believe, as we're saying, that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary? Do you believe that He was conceived of the Holy Spirit? Do you believe that He suffered under Pontius Pilate? Do you believe that He was baptized by John the Baptist? Do you believe that He was crucified, dead, and buried? Do you believe that He was risen from the dead? Not just seeming to rise. It's the error of many today. Many liberals would, would... deny the bodily resurrection of jesus but they would say oh jesus rose all right he rose in the minds of the apostles who thought that he rose but that's just docetism at the back end after his life rather than docetism at the the front end but the point here is to believe he's real flesh and blood like any of us do you believe christ came in the flesh to die for your sins. That's what we celebrate in the Lord's Supper. It's what we'll celebrate here in a, a little bit. Well, let's move on to the the third testimony, the testimony of the Spirit. And Again, this comes in verses 6 through 8 because He's mentioned in each of those verses or at least talked about. Verse 6, "...and the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood." And these three all agree. Now the Spirit, when it's talking about this, isn't the Spirit of Jesus. This is the Holy Spirit. It's being talked about here. That last night when Jesus spent with his disciples on earth, he told them about how he's going away. But when he goes away, the Holy Spirit is going to come. He's the helper. John fifteen twenty six. But when he, the helper, comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father... He will bear witness about me, Jesus said. So even before he came, Jesus said, the Holy Spirit's coming and he's going to testify about me. That's exactly what John is talking about here. The Holy Spirit testifies. So you say, okay, well, what what does he testify? How, How does it work that the Spirit testifies? Well, he explained. Jesus said a little bit later, he says, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. So think about that. It's better for us to be apart from Jesus with the spirit than it is for us to be with Jesus, because it was better for the disciples that Jesus would go away and the spirit would come. Just a little FYI. I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So here it is, that Jesus went and he sent his spirit. And the spirit works in the hearts of people who don't know Jesus and he works in the heart of them convicting of sin righteousness and judgment right convicts hearts of sin exposes people to their wayward ways that they might seek their need for justification they say oh, i'm 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 lost in my sin and, and 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 i need i need justification i need this legal i need to stand legally right before god and the spirit does that convicting work in the heart To draw to God. The Holy Spirit works in the hearts of unbelievers, showing them the way of righteousness. He'll show them that there's such a thing as right and wrong. Show them how they lack. And by the way, it's not just unbelievers He does this with, He does it with believers as well. He gets in our hearts and He shows us, He exposes us. It's the Spirit testifying. The Spirit also works in the hearts of those in the world that there is indeed a day of judgment. He'll show them there's a day coming when they, they need to give an account of their lives before God. This is why no one will stand an excuse of the judgment day. Because he says, I sent sent the world, sent the Spirit into the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. I, I sent him concerning sin because you didn't believe. Sent him concerning judgment is I've cast out the rule of this world. Believe. That's what the Holy Spirit does. And, and you all walking with God know a bit about that. What it is when you do wrong, and and the Holy Spirit convicts you of that wrong, or when you when you just suppress things of of reality in the future, and maybe hear some New Age doctrine and say, hey, that sounds kind of nice, I kind of like a Nirvana, and, and the Spirit says, no, no, there's no Nirvana, and kind of like I'd like that, I like that purgatory where I could be purged, and, and the Spirit says, no, no, there's no purgatory, and the Spirit puts you right back forth regarding judgment and puts you right forth regarding righteousness, that righteous is the way to go. So how does the Spirit do that? He works deep in our hearts. And it's better that the Spirit is among us than that Jesus is, is gone. And if the Holy Spirit works, people reject that work. They don't believe. Or they accept the truth about themselves and they see the judgment coming And if they come to the Lord seeking with all their heart, they will find the Lord. They will find Jesus, the one who came by water and blood. They'll find all their spiritual needs fulfilled. And the testimony of the Spirit leads them to believe through the testimony of the water and the testimony of the blood. Well, all three of these, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, all work together. That's what we see in verse 7. There are three that testify. It's the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. So if you're here this morning and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, know that the testimony has been clear. It has come. You know, you know when they, we tried to arrest Jesus, so they tried to try Jesus. There were false witnesses that came and, and it didn't work because they disagreed with each other and they contradicted each other. But at this point, they all agree. And you cannot claim ignorance because they all testify in the law, the requirement was that there would be two or three witnesses for any charge to be established. Deuteronomy 19, verse 15. A single witness will not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with an offense that he has committed only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall charge be established. And when it comes to us standing before God, there are witnesses. There are the water and the blood and the Spirit. They all agree. And they are sufficient We have three witnesses, no disagreement among them. They're all testifying that the true reality of Jesus Christ. If you walk out of here not believing, it's not because of lack of evidence. In fact, anyone who doesn't believe, it's not because of lack of evidence. Romans 1 speaks about God made himself known through all of creation, through the things that he has made. If you walk out of this place unbelieving, it's because you've chosen to ignore the reality of the testimony of these clear witnesses. But it's worse. It's worse you walk out unbelieving it's because you ignore the testimony of god himself look at verses 9 through 12 if we receive the testimony of men the testimony of god is greater for this is the testimony of god that he is born concerning his son whoever believes in the son of god is a testimony in himself whoever does not believe god has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God is born concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. And here's the wonderful gospel, right? If you have the Son of God, you have life. If you don't have the Son of God, you don't have life. That's bad news, I guess. But if you have the Son, you, you have life. And this life isn't just merely... It's described as life in verse 12. But possession of the Son means life. But in verse 11, this life is described as eternal life. This is that famous verse in John three sixteen that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. There is eternal life. It's the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is, this is life that, that never ends. This is true life. I mean, there's enough things about this life that are enjoyable that we get a hint and a taste of what the true life is. There are enough things about this life where enough of us say, Fooey with this life. I don't want this if this is what this means. But it's not. It's the the abundant life. It is the great life. And it's the life that lasts forever. That John Newton penned those words about how joyous it would be, right? When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we'd first begun. So even 10,000 years is not diminishing the number of days that eternal life is all about. Eternal is a, a long, long time. It's a time of great joy. And so how can you have that life? If you have the Son. Life comes in the Son. It comes through receiving Jesus. To all who received Him, who believe in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. John one twelve. John 1.12 See, it's through faith in Christ. It's through receiving Christ. It's not through working harder. It's not through being better. In fact, that's the point of verse 11. This is a testimony that God gave us eternal life. We didn't earn eternal life. We didn't work for eternal life. We didn't merit eternal life. In fact, whatever we merited was death. But the gift of God, He gave us eternal life. And there's no better news in the world that's in Jesus we have life. And I just say this: If you think there's some other way to God apart from Christ, you've not believed God, and you don't have life. I trust you've had this experience, right? When 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 you're talking to someone and they tell you something, and you just say, "This is not right," you just you you don't believe it. They they say something happened that you just no, I don't I don't I don't think that happened. Or they. Um, they, they say some research has proven something. And you're like, it doesn't, doesn't pass the smell test. I don't, I don't think that's, that's quite right. Or they say of some future event. I, this is going to happen. You're like, I don't, I don't, I don't think so. So in, in those instances, it's easy to just ignore their testimony. So for instance, a, a child student comes to the teacher and says, my dog, what? Hey, my homework. <laughs> Teacher's like... Yeah, right. In the back of the teacher's mind, what's the teacher going to do? ignoring that. That's not right. And it's easy to ignore it. Or, Or maybe someone claims that, oh, this certain diet or these certain vitamins or this certain supplement that you can purchase from me for all this money, this will keep you from cancer, prevent cancer. Someone's trying to sell you something, what do you say? Yeah, I don't know. You just ignore them just whatever you see that on the internet you just click someplace else or you hear it on a phone call you just hang up you're reading the newspaper you just turn the page it's easy to ignore or when someone says right the the big underdog is going to win the game right i just i know they're 40 point underdogs right but but they're gonna they're gonna win right the sixers are gonna beat the warriors it's gonna happen i tell you you're like right right you just kind of you can ignore them but see, when we have the testimony of God, it's, it's no easy matter. We can't just ignore that testimony because, verse 9 says, the testimony of God is greater. That's greater than any testimony that anybody will ever give you. And if you don't believe in Jesus, you, you, can, you can try to ignore the testimony of God. And many people do so. But but it's actually worse because when you just ignore someone, I mean, oftentimes in in our in our lives we can like sugarcoat something. Like if someone's not telling us the truth, um, we can say, well, they're not lying; they they think it's true, and and they're they're well intentioned. I mean, I mean, this dietary supplement has really helped them, and they're cancer free, and so they're not they're not they're just like misguided. But they're not lying or they think it's true. They, they mean, well, it's just that it's just not true. And and oftentimes with people, we, we full well can say, well, they're just misguided or they're misinformed or their research is bad. And I can't convince them, but I just know they're they're not lying. They're not trying to lie. But when it comes to God, if there is a, a test when it comes forth that you don't believe there's anything in the Bible that you don't believe, basically you are saying God is a liar. And that's exactly what we see in verse 10. Whoever believes in the son of God has a testimony in himself. All right? So if you come, you believed in Christ, you believed in Jesus son of God, you have that testimony. But the second part, whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. Anyone who doesn't believe in Jesus points his finger at God and says, God, you are a liar. I don't care. You might call them well-intentioned, but you can't say that God was, was just well-intentioned. But you were like, he really believes this. Because God, who Titus 1, verse 2, cannot lie. It's impossible for God to think something is true when indeed, in fact, it is not true. It is furthermore impossible for Him to mean well, to tell us something which isn't true, claiming it to be true. So if you don't believe in the testimony of God, you can't do what we can do on the human level. You can only say that God is a liar. And that's the reality of our text this morning, and that's the the power of this testimony. I want you to feel this morning. Is that, is that believing in Jesus, oftentimes people say it's a matter of faith. And it is. But more fundamental, it's a matter of truth. It's a matter of truth and error. Because it a matter whether God is telling the truth or whether he's lying. And many people are saying he's lying. And, and just to catch the seriousness of this, I can do no better than D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He wrote this. He says, Why should I believe on Jesus Christ? Well, if you have no other answer... God has told you that He is the Messiah. It's not merely the testimony of men, but the testimony of God. And over and above all other testimony, our case rests on this fact, that this is a revelation from God. This is not a philosophy. This is not something a man thinks. It's not human imagination. It's not a myth. We claim here that we have a revelation from God, and the reason for believing this message is that it is the witness and testimony of God himself. Lloyd-Jones continues, This is a terrifying thought, and I wonder whether we realize it as we should, not to believe the gospel and the Christian message is to say that God is a liar. Is there anyone uncertain about these things? Anyone who talks about these difficulties and says, My mind is not fully satisfied. If there is such a person, I have great empathy with you. But I would remind you that this statement comes from God. God himself is giving testimony and witness. God has said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear ye him. Am I to refuse him? Well, the terrifying thing is that if I do, I'm saying that God's pronouncement is not true. And this is the position in which it involves us. For here we start on a different level. It is a revelation from God. It is the Almighty Himself who tells us this. And it's not a question of pitting our minds against a human teaching. It is a statement from heaven. And to reject it is to say that God is a liar. End quote. I think Lloyd-Jones really puts it down as to say that are you believing? It's a matter of revelation, it's a matter of truth or not. And if you're not believing, I just encourage you today to believe on Christ. Because it's a matter of truth and error, unless you want to call God a liar. Because there'll be a day in children, especially, there'll be a day if you're not believing. You're going to stand before God. And if you didn't believe in Jesus, you can stick your finger at him and say, God, you're a liar. And you don't want to say that to your teacher, you don't want to say that to your parents. You don't say that to a, a policeman, you don't say that to people in authority, you you won't want to say that to God. God alone is our salvation. It's only through Christ. On him rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. That's so why I just say, trust in Him at all times, O oh people, pour out your hearts before Him. Because God is a refuge for us. Well, I want us to transition to the Lord's Supper here. So turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 11. And by the way, just in preparation for coming up to Easter, as so we, so we think about that last Passover that Christ spent with His disciples, we think about Easter. We'll be celebrating the Lord's Supper every week for the next five weeks just to get a taste of what weekly um, communion is like. But here, here, here I want to work through this a little bit and show you that, that just as we've looked at the, those who've testified to Jesus, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning, it's an opportunity for us to testify as well. I trust you know this passage pretty well. We go to it often. But he says in verse 23 I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he's betrayed, he took bread. When he given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant my blood. Do this as often as you drink it. In remembrance of me. And we know that that's the a Seder meal. If you have a chance to go to a Seder meal with some Jewish friends, go, because it so much points to Jesus. This is the meal they celebrated the time since Moses and the Exodus. They still celebrate it today. They're having this meal around. They're, they're eating this bread. They're drinking this cup, filled with symbolism, all anticipating the time, or remembering the time when Moses redeemed them from the land of slavery. And Jesus turns it on a hinge and says, no longer remember Moses, but remember me. Right, this, this bread, don't think about it anymore about the, the unleavened bread they had in the wilderness, or how they had to leave quickly and God redeemed them out of slavery in Egypt. But do this remembrance of me. And he's talking about his bread there, his body represented by the bread. And it says the cup, this cup is a new covenant. My blood, I'm going to spill my blood upon the cross and this blood is going to be the very means of your salvation. The blood... Of course, symbolizing the death of Christ, the sacrificial death of Christ was the important thing. And he, he says, don't, don't look back to the slaughtered lamb of the Passover where they, they took the, uh, the blood and they poured it on, painted the doorposts of the houses so the angel of death would come and pass over them. But no, think about me. Because now in me, the angel of death will pass over you eternally. And that's what he's doing at this point. But I want to focus your attention on verse 26. He says, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now this is a different word than testifying, but you can it's a synonym enough. You could almost say this, right? You testify to the Lord's death until he comes. And that's what the Lord's Supper is about. So it's, it's about an opportunity for us in a different way with our taste buds to, to think about and to testify to Christ Jesus that he has died. We believe he came. We believe he died we believe he rose again and that he is coming back and as i take this bread and i drink this cup it is a it is a way to say yes this is where my hope and my trust is in and so that's where it's for you if you're believing today if you're believing and trusting in this Christ according to these four witnesses the water and the blood and the spirit and God himself then by all means celebrate the supper with us if your hearts are right if your hearts right before him but if you're not believing if you're disbelieving if you're saying god you're a liar then don't don't eat the bread and drink the cup because it means that I'm hoping in this. But if you're not hoping in that, then just let it pass. It's okay. You can think and reflect the value of the songs we sing will be, will be helpful to you. But we're going we're gonna to do that. I'm going to pray now and then the, we'll sing a song and distribute the elements. And, and if your heart is right and you're, you're walking with the Lord, by all means, celebrate the supper with us. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we, we so want to receive the testimony of the water and the blood and the Spirit and God Himself and believe in that testimony. And we have an opportunity now even to express that. And Father, we would pray that we would delight reflecting upon the fact that this is what it means to have the Son, is that it means that we get to eat Him. As Jesus says, He is the bread of life. Whoever eats of Him will not die. Forever. And so God we, we drink your blood. Not literally of course. God but in a symbolic way. That you are the, the the living water. God that the one who drinks from you. Will never thirst again. And so these are. Mere symbols God. Of, of our hope and our expression. And Lord I pray. That we might just examine our hearts. For he who eats and drinks of the cup. In an unworthy manner will be guilty. Of the body and the blood of the Lord. Father I pray that. Even sin would be confessed right now. God, where, where lack has been, God, where zeal for you has waned, I pray your spirit would come and convict us of those things that we might expose them and say, God, absolutely that's sin and it's wrong. Because the one you delight in and desire is not the one who walks in righteousness perfectly, but the one who confesses his lack of perfection. And so God, help us in these moments to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen.